morning. Uh, as Steve said, my name is Ryan, and if I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you. It's one of uh, my joys to serve here as one of the pastors on staff and uh, one of the elders at the church. Love uh, this community, and so it's so great to join with you week after week. I want to invite you, if you haven't already opened your Bibles to the book of John chapter 7, you're welcome to always tap there if you prefer digital version uh, of that, and uh, we're going to be in there for a little while. Um, my guess is most of us in our lives have a story that's very similar. And it's a story that maybe when you were a kid, it goes something like this. You were with your parents at a store. Maybe you were on vacation somewhere. You were at a lake or in a park and walking next to your parents, being a kid, looking around. And you have that moment where you look up and your parents are no longer where you thought they were. And, and, and you realize, wait, Am I alone? And you kind of have that panic, that look around and to see, where did my parents go? Now, if you never had that story as a kid and you are a parent, my guess is you've been on the other side of that at some point. Where maybe you were with your kids, you're walking next to them, and you look down and they are no longer there. Or maybe sometimes it's a different kid. You're like, whoa, what's going on? And when you are a kid and that happens, and you're looking for your parents, the, the minutes are just amplified. This seemed like, what? Am I all alone? What happened? As a parent, every minute is like an hour. Where are my kids? What happened to them? I know for us, we've even had, uh, well, well, many times for us. So we'll, well, I'm sure we'll beat that record. But um, there's even at Ross in the store one time, we had to have the security guard play goalie at the front and say, don't let any kids out. I don't care who they're with. We need to make sure because we can't find ours. And they were just hiding in the clothes racks, which makes sense. That's one of the coolest places to hide, right? But we have those stories. And, and when you're a kid, you have that moment and you think, will I ever find my parents again? But when you do, sometimes there's a lot of tears, sometimes a little bit of anger, but often you'll hear a parent will say to our kids, it's okay, I was here all along. You were, you were never that far away. Hopefully that's the story for most of you. You were never that far away. I was close by. Today we're entering a, a portion of scripture and in our spiritual lives, there's times when I believe we feel like we look up and we say, wait, God, where are you? Wait, wait, I thought you were here with me. It feels like you're not there anymore. And maybe it's because you have been hiding in the clothes rack of life. Or maybe it's you've just lost your way. But we have those moments when we say, God, what happened? And today through the story, we're going to see the story where God is about the business of reminding his people that I have never left you. I was here all along. And the story that we're going to see today in scripture in John chapter 7 is actually a story of Jesus. And on the surface, it's just an interesting story. But when we dive deeper and we dig down to really understand what is the symbolism happening, that there's this rich, deep uh, indication of that God wanted us to know something deeper about his self, himself and his presence in our lives. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to look through John chapter 7, verse by verse, for about 13 verses. I'll help us understand it and then ask the question at the end, 
Why does this matter? What are we supposed to learn from it? So let's jump back in. We already had it in our scripture reading for the day. But John chapter 7 verse 1 starts and said, after these things, and and that was these things in chapter 6, we saw that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, which caused some debate among people of what, why is this teacher, this potential Messiah doing these miraculous things on the Sabbath day when he shouldn't be working, and then it led to Jesus having a series of teachings that was so challenging that at one point it says many of the people who are following Jesus walked away. And they said, this, is, this truth is too difficult. We're walking away. To which Jesus looked at his closest disciples and said, are you going to leave as well? After those things, now chapter 7, Jesus was walking around Galilee. This is just essentially meaning he was doing his work in Galilee. The other uh, writers of the Gospels spend a lot more time on what he was doing in Galilee. In John, he spends very little time there. Um, And then it says, Jesus did not want to go to Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, some of your translations might say that he did not want to go for fear of the Jews. He was not afraid of Jewish people. So just want you to know that. He was a Jewish person. Um, And what, so this translation and some like NIV will say the Jewish leaders. So when it says for fear of the Jews or the Jews wanted to kill him, what they're talking about is the leaders um, in the temple and, and not even all of them but some of them. And so he did not go down there yet. Verse two. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, we're gonna stop right there. Because when we read through these stories and we have an indication about what time of year it is or something going on, we wanna ask, well, why is that important? Why would this author want us to know that the time, this festival or this feast is near? Now, some of your Bibles might say the Feast of Booths, Some might say of tabernacles. Um, Some in the Hebrew word for this is Sukkot, uh, which is a plural word for Sukkah, which is essentially means, think of it as shelters. Uh, Some of your translations might even say the feast or the festival of the shelters as well. It's all talking about the same thing. And we want to understand what is that? On the Jewish calendar, there are three feasts that are known as pilgrimage feasts, meaning they instructed the males uh, when the temple existed to pilgr- make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, celebrate it there. Often they would, um, if they were able, obviously many families would go. It's a eight-day festival uh, where the first and the last day were supposed to be Sabbath days of rest. And uh, it was one that was, in, you're instructed to be joyous. It should be a happy festival. It's not a somber one. And what you do is you build a structure that, and we're going to look at this in a moment, that looks a little like this. This is kind of more of a modern interpretation. Yes, there are some pipes and some metal that probably didn't exist um, when they were wandering in the desert. But so just to give you a little idea, and to this day, many Jewish families will celebrate Sukkot every year. In fact, it comes up near the end of this month. And uh, you make a structure, and there's, it's based in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 42. It says this about the, the feast. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in these booths when I brought them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the idea is that you create these structures, and during the feast, you live in them. Now, 
modern interpretation would be you don't have to live in them for 24 hours a day, but if you eat your meals in them, then that becomes your home. It counts. So you'll have even in, especially in Israel today or in very um, Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, you might see these everywhere. Uh, When my family lived there, uh, many people would put them on their patios outside. Uh, We didn't have a little balcony or patio, so uh, around our apartment we had kind of a lawn area um, outside of America. Uh, it's called a garden um, all around our building where people would put up these structures. And there's not a lot of biblical commands of what they're supposed to look like other than you to live in them, uh, to use uh, four different types of branches, palm branches, citrus, myrtle tree, and olive. Did I say olive already? I think olive. So four, whatever I said, there's four of them. And uh, so you use those to, uh, to build their part of the celebration as well. Now, with this, the idea is that it's a reminder, again, of the time they lived in the desert. Now, consider this as we come over to this. Any time of these feasts and these festivals, they do such a great job of bringing this meaningful symbolism. And if you're with your family and you're building this structure and starting to eat inside of it, the natural question will be, well, why are we doing this? Why do we have to eat in here? And in the Jewish faith, they're so much better at this than a lot of us are as far as explaining the meaning behind things. So as you eat in here, it would be with your kids, you would say, well, this is to remind us of the time our forefathers were living in the desert when they were led out of Egypt for 40 years. They had to live in tents. They had to build their own shelters. And you think, okay, we remember that. But there's something even deeper than that that goes on, because when you're in a temporary shelter like this, and of of course, this one would do no good um, anywhere other than maybe San Diego, it would work, but Many people in modern day will use white sheets on the side to remind them of the pillar, that God's presence was in a pillar of cloud during the day. But it's more than just we were wandering in the desert. It was a reminder that God was present with us. It meant that even when we were on our own and, and when it felt like, how will we survive out here? Every time you build these, year after year, it was a reminder that God didn't give up on, he was there with us. In our temporary structure, he was dwelling among us, his presence. Now, there's something more about the Feast of Sukkot, and that is that not only is it to look back, but it also happens to be at the time of year of a harvest festival or a harvest time. So it's also sometimes known as a festival of the ingathering. And it's when you gather in the fall harvest, which was generally grapes and wine. In fact, uh, rabbis had to make a tra- uh, interpretation early on to say, hey, you're enjoying the wine of Sukkot a little too much. Why don't you dial it back a little bit? It is supposed to be joyous, and you're celebrating this feast, but you should probably be able to walk straight. So let's dial that back. Um, we, that's not in the Bible, but that literally is some of the uh, commands that have been handed down. So it's a harvest festival to, th- to also be thankful for God providing. And then there's a third thing. It's known, it has a, one of those festivals that has these messianic implications, meaning that there's this something about the Messiah. The belief that in the end 
the Messiah will return to earth for a final time, the one that they've been waiting for, that the prophets have been talking about, a Messiah will come and deliver Israel. And in the end, all the nations and people who are against him, he will gather them in gather to himself, those who put their faith in him, and they will celebrate this feast together. In Zechariah chapter 14, which is one of the minor prophets because it's shorter. We learned that today, right? So Zechariah 14 says, it'll come about that any who, uh, any who are left of all the nations that came against Israel will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the feast of booths. So there's this future prophetic kind of language around it as well that says, not only do we look back and remember that God was with us, not only do we look at today and thank him for providing for us, but we are going to look forward and also say there will be a day when God will bring a harvest of all the nations who will put their faith in him and worship him. And in that time, they will celebrate the Feast of Booths. Why? Because they're literally celebrating the presence of God, that he dwells among them. I spent some extra time with that because in the next three Sundays, we're gonna, this is the context for what we are going through in the book of John. And the imagery starts to get very thick when we understand how they were celebrating this festival. So let's go back um, into it, but first just to remind you. So the festival of the tabernacles it was three things. It remembers that God was with them uh, and dwelled with them in the desert. So that's the first thing that we see and we wanna remember that. The next one is it celebrates God's provision in the place where he brought them. So that's that harvest. And then the future, it looks forward to uh, the hope of the Messiah who will defeat evil and unite all people. So those are the things. We're past, present, future. And when we build these, these booths, you think about it, there's just this whole story of God. Now, let's go back to our story. So verse 2 said the Feast of Booths was coming up. Verse 3. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. So here's what's happening here. Is his brothers are saying, Oh, here's this feast uh, the, you're talking about being the Messiah. Why don't you go there and let people know who you are? This is your big opportunity. And the way this uh, is actually even written in Greek, they're using kind of this respectful language that in some ways is actually a little bit mocking. It's almost like, hey, great one. As you go, hey, this is your chance. We're all going down to the feast. What better time? Quit, doing, quit being in secret with your little Messiah thing. Why don't, this is, this is your moment. And when you hear that, that can sometimes feel pretty harsh, is it not? But think of how hard it would be to be one of Jesus' siblings. <laughs> that alone, right? Certainly, I believe that they knew the stories of who he was, but they were siblings. So I'm going to give you maybe just a humorous view into what that would be like as we were thinking this week of how do we just help us think a little bit about Jesus, but I can't do it as well. So I want to show you a one-minute clip of what it might have been like to be Jesus' brother from this person named Michael Jr. So he'll teach us about what it's like to be Jesus' brother. Look on the screen. I like reading the Bible. I was reading the Bible. Found out, uh, found out Jesus had a little brother. Anybody know his name? 
James. When I read that, I was like, how much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. It's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you just gonna stand there with your sandals on? You're not gonna... Can you make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not gonna do anything. So yeah, so Jesus had brothers. <laughs> And you may wonder, like, what, you know, it's a humorous way to think of it, but what would that have been like to grow up with Jesus? Certainly they heard the stories of his miraculous birth. Can you imagine what it was like at his birthday every year? When the mom would, would say, like, hey, do you guys remember the story about Jesus? How he was born? And they go, yeah, we hear this every year. Let's light a little advent candle. No, okay. But so they, every year they're talking about this. They knew. They remembered when he was 12 years old and the family went down for another feast and they were in the temple and as they left and they, uh, they walked for a day before they realized Jesus hadn't come with them. So they had to walk all the way back. Could you imagine being the little brothers going like, we're walking back another whole day just to go find our brother? Who cares? Leave him. I'm not walking all the way back. And when they got there, he said, you should have known I had to be in the temple because I'm about my father's business. Oh, his brothers knew the story. They knew that Jesus was born with a mission. Certainly they would know, even as they looked at Scripture, that the parents said, we believe he's the Messiah. But they're mocking him here because it says that they did not believe in him. Now, this word isn't the way we think of believe. Often in our culture, believe is you're either real or you're not. God exists or he does not exist. In the, old, in the Bible times, everyone believed that God existed. Believing in God wasn't, is he real? It's what will you do with that belief? And this is actually the word that is more of, they didn't put their trust in him. So they might have known who he was. They wouldn't, might have known the stories. And they're just saying, like, if you're going to do this Messiah thing, just do it now. Let's see. We're not convinced. Show us. Imagine the rejection that Jesus felt from his own brothers. What would that have been like? Now I want you to notice something. What they were saying and asking Jesus to do, they weren't actually all that off base. It's actually something he wanted to do. He wanted to reveal himself to the world, but he says, now let's jump back in in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here to do that. For you, you at any time can do, any time will do for you. Because the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go down to the festival. Uh, I'm not going to go to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee while his brothers left. Now a couple things here. 
Um, he's using this language saying, my time has not yet come. What this is actually referring to is this, this is not the right opportunity. And he's referring directly to not the opportunity for myself to reveal myself as the Messiah. I'm not going to do this publicly yet. Not yet. It's not going to happen. But I want you to see another thing about how John is writing this conversation. Saying the world doesn't hate you. You can go down there. You belong to their tribe. But the world hates me. Now we see this terminology applied throughout the book of John. All the way back in John chapter 1 verse 10. The writer writes this. He says, Jesus was in the world and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. So again, Jesus creates the world. He's the one who creates it. He comes to it, and it does not know who he is. We also have maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 said, God did not send Jesus into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So interesting that the God who loves the world is being hated by that very world. Next verse, verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, Jesus also went, but not publicly. He went in secret. And at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Now, first big question here is, did Jesus lie to his brothers, right? That's a good question. It's like, oh, I'm not going. You guys go ahead. And he went anyway. Um, I believe that what he really was saying is, I'm not coming down publicly with you. It's not my time. I'm not going with you now. You're going to make a big deal about it. Everyone's going to look for you and say, hey, where's Jesus? So you go down. I'm not going yet. But he certainly would still go to the festival. But he didn't want a big public display. As he goes, the Jewish leaders were looking around and asking for Jesus, saying, where is he? Now again, remember, this is an important festival that everyone would go to. So it makes sense that they're asking, hey, where is that rabbi who's been teaching? Where is that person who we believe might be the Messiah? He's got to be here somewhere. So the context of it, it's not just some random day that they're saying, hey, where's Jesus? They expected him to be there because every devout Jew would be there. Notice the crowds were wrestling with this question of who Jesus is. Look at verse 12 and 13. Among the crowds, they were, there was widespread whispering. Some translations even have grumbling among them and saying, he is a good man. But others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So the crowds are wrestling with, who is this Jesus? Some were saying he was good. Some were saying they think he's a deceiver. That reminds me of C.S. Lewis has this argument about Jesus. who says that when we approach Jesus, we have to think of him as either, he's either the Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. Because if he's Lord, that means we trust what he says, we believe that he's good, all of that. If he's not Lord, then he must be could be a lunatic. He thought he was God in flesh, but he's not. So we have to say, hey, we can't believe him. Or he's a liar. He knew he was deceiving the people. But he can't be both. He can't be a liar and good. And the crowd's wrestling with this. Some people, uh, maybe you've even said it yourself, like, I don't know if I believe Jesus as Lord, but I think he's a good person. He's worth listening to. 
But if you believe that, that he's a good teacher and he's worth listening to, you have to come to the conclusion eventually that he is Lord. Because he can't be a good teacher and say the things he says about himself, which is, I am actually the son of God in flesh among you. If he's good, but he's deceiving you, then you can throw out all of his teaching. And the crowd's wrestling with who he is. Now, what do we learn from this short story? about Jesus. And when we take this, the background, background of the feast, I believe there's three things that we can learn from today. First one is this. We learn about God's timing. We learn about God's timing. See, this festival of Sukkot is all about God's timing. Could you imagine being in the wilderness for 40 years God promised to deliver you. He takes you out of slavery in Egypt. And then what do you have? You have the desert. You're wandering around. That's where you live for 40 years. You're in Barstow. <laughs> Good, seriously, Lord. How long do we have to be here? Next to the, the biggest thermometer in the world or whatever that is. But it was about God's timing. See, his timing, Sukkot reminds us that in the wilderness, it was God's timing. You weren't yet ready as my people. You had lessons to learn about who I am. You had lessons to learn about my presence. Next thing is this. It was God's timing even with Jesus. Jesus had a, a moment. He came at the right time in history. He revealed himself at the right time. His brothers wanted him to do it sooner. He said, not yet. This is about my timing. Sukkot also reminds us about God's timing with you and with me. Notice his brothers rejected him. Those same brothers, we found that actually James became the leader of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. He was beheaded. He was martyred for his faith in Jesus. He went from skeptic to the one mocking Jesus to the one who gave his life and died for the belief that he truly was the son of God. God's timing even with his brothers. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm an older brother and I'm God in flesh and they're mocking me, <laughs> I'm gonna have some older brother magic going on, you know? They're going to know who I really am. But no, Jesus was patient, his timing with them. Sukkot reminds us that it's God's timing. He's patient with you. He's patient with your siblings. He's patient with your kids. How many of you have been praying for something for years and years and just hoping God would answer? His timing is not always ours. The next thing we learn about Sukkot, this festival, is God's presence. The whole thing is a reminder that when you were in temporary shelters, that God was present among the people. But notice this, too. Every year when you build these temporary structures to remember those days, you're reminded that your security isn't in your permanent dwelling. What gives you significance isn't the fact that now you're in the promised land. 
That now you have a house to live in. That now things are better. You have more power, more wealth. You're an established nation. It's a reminder every year that that's not what gives you your significance. All along, it was the presence of God when you were wandering, when you were in your temporary shelter. It's about his presence among us. Think of the symbolism of this. The very festival that remembers that God was with them, sheltering, and they're tabernacling, they're making these tabernacles. God was dwelling among them in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelled, he tabernacled among his people. So the very festival, we're remembering that God was present. Jesus was present in flesh and bones. The tent of, that was encapsulating the very essence of God walking among them. His presence. God is present even here. In the New Testament, we're even told this, even a greater truth. Now that Jesus has gone, for those of us who believe in him and have the Holy Spirit, we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Try to get your head around that every once in a while. What if we believed it? So it's God's timing, it's God's presence, and the festival reminds us about God's mission. All along the story of scripture is God calling a people to a place under his rule, in his presence. And it's about God's mission of bringing people to him. Sukkot is this annual festival that also remembers about a harvest. It's about a gathering of a harvest. But it's looking to the ultimate harvest that's found in Jesus. Bringing all the nations to himself. So here again, we find that God's mission was realized in Jesus as he took on flesh for the mission of gathering us to himself. Imagine the scorn and notice the scorn that Jesus was going through. His own brothers were mocking him. Soon the crowds, he'd start to hear, oh, he's a deceiver, he's a liar, we don't trust him. He has a demon Because of God's mission for you and for me and for all the nations to know him, he put up with the public scorn and humiliation. This festival of Sukkot reminds us that God has a mission and he will accomplish it. Notice this too. For some of us, maybe you think you're close enough to Jesus that you'd recognize him, but all along, the crowds were there. And they missed him. They missed what he was doing. We see that here there's a gift from God and sometimes it's to open our eyes spiritually to be able to see Jesus. So as we celebrate and we think of this feast and we think of this time where Jesus came and even the next few weeks under this backdrop of his presence among us, the question I want to ask you is, Have you been missing Jesus? Has he been with you all along and we believe that he is present? But are you missing on what he's doing in your life? You're looking past him to something else? You're expecting something different? When all along his mission is to gather you and me and the nations to him that we may worship the king who dwells among us. 
we're going to transition into worship here in a moment. And as we do that, maybe we can pause and just start and think about where have you been disappointed with God's timing? Where in your life do you need to just hand it over and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry, but your ways are not mine and, and I'm trying to force your hand and help me be patient with your timing. Maybe for you, where do you need to recognize that God has been present and just trust that he is with you through the ups and the downs to the unknowns? And of course, finally, how do you respond to Jesus? The mission he had he, gave, he dwelled among us, tabernacled in human flesh, was made fun of and beaten and scorned, ultimately was crucified for you and for me. And while he raised his arms out at the world that hated him, he said, for God so loved you that I'm doing this. You are why I'm here. How do you respond to Jesus? We're going to end our time uh, with a couple songs, and as we do, this first one really just tells the story, and I want to invite you to maybe reflect on it as we begin, and when you're ready to join in and sing and worship, I want to invite you to stand and respond to God, but take a moment, just take a moment, and just let your heart just respond to this God who dwelled among us, and he does today. <laughs>